We're now in the third week of our series, Cloud of Witnesses, and in it, we're walking through Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, It's called the, the Hall of Faith, and we're looking at the lives of the men and women in this chapter, because the best way to see what faith is like is to look to those who've lived by it. Because faith isn't just believing the right things. Faith is living in light of what we do believe. Uh, However, the main goal of Hebrews and the main goal of this series isn't just to celebrate the faith of this group of people, but to see how their faith points us to Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith and the author and perfecter of our faith. Faith for us then as Christians is the total alignment of ourselves with Jesus, our intellect, Our emotions, our desires, and our actions, they all align with Jesus. Last week, uh, we looked at the faith of Enoch. And we we saw how his faith was pleasing to God, but how it wasn't just that his faith was pleasing to God, but that his faith brought him into the pleasure and delight of God. The God who delights in him and rejoices over him in singing. In the same way, our faith brings us into God and his pleasure. This week, we now turn to the next person in the cloud, and that's Noah. And Noah, the story of Noah and the ark is a controversial one. Uh, It's a challenging one, and it's one that's been brought back into popularity because of uh, Darren Aronofsky's movie, Noah. But as we've been doing, uh, we're going to let the author of Hebrews set the framework for how we understand Noah's life and how we understand Noah's faith. And so we'll be looking at three things this morning. Uh, The first... Noah's unseen event, the second is our unseen event, and lastly, we'll look at an enduring faith. So open your Bibles with me uh, to Hebrews chapter 11. We get one verse today, uh, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The first thing the author of Hebrews wants to draw our attention to is that God warned Noah of an event yet unseen. And all of us, for the most part, you know, uh, know the gist of the Noah story. You know, you've seen the happy flannel graph that looks, you know, something like this. You know, God is a you know, gray-haired, bearded gentleman, and he, he comes and he speaks to Noah, and he says, Noah, I'm going to send a flood, so get busy and build an ark. And, and all of a sudden, you know, really happy animals show up. You know, you got lions and hippopotamus and polar bears and puppies and, and skunks, and they're all just surprisingly chill. Uh, and then, you know, God floods the world like it's nothing, and then to top it off, the cherry on top, God invite, invents the rainbow. You know, this is uh, the story as we understand it, but is this... The story as it's actually told, and the the other question is, did this story even happen at all? Because this event is just as unseen for us, so we want to know, is there any archaeological evidence? You know, was it a localized or global flood? Is this just a myth? Uh, These are great questions, and there's some great resources available that answer these sort of questions, uh, but they are beyond the scope of this sermon. Uh, For what it's worth, I believe in Noah and the flood. You can come ask me about that. But more often than not, I think we ask these types of questions, good questions, hard questions, to avoid a more difficult and challenging message. Because the message behind the flood is a very difficult one indeed. It's not flannel graph friendly. Uh, God warned Noah of events yet unseen. What exactly did he warn Noah of? We get this in Genesis 6, 
verses 11 through 14. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark. The message behind the flood is that judgment is coming. And we touched on this briefly last week. Enoch lived in a world that was getting worse and worse, and this trajectory towards uh, total corruption and violence reaches a climax in Noah's time. Earth is at its worst. And humanity has failed to become uh, what God had created them to be, his image bearers. And Genesis 6.6 says this grieved God deeply. If you can, uh, try to imagine a world of total corruption and violence with me. I know it might be a little difficult. So imagine, you know, you're at a grocery store and someone cuts in front of you in line. You know, like, that is corruption. Uh, you know, the, you're... you're you're at your car, and the, the parking person comes and gives you a ticket because you haven't put the quarter in. You know, it's corrupt. Uh, the mayor doesn't pay for a SkyTrain ticket. You know, it's corrupt. Uh, but imagine a world beyond, you know, the, the, the trivial corruption, but a world that is corrupt and violent. A world where children are ripped away from their families and sold into the sex trade. A world where children are beaten and abused and even killed by their parents. A world where men and women are exploited in sexual acts as people watch from a safe distance on the other side of a screen. A world where men and women are raped. In Canada, that's every 17 minutes, and in America, that's every two. A world where husbands and wives murder one another in a rage. A world where people are so self-absorbed and careless of other people's safety that they drink and drive and murder other people with their car. A world where teenagers buy guns and walk into schools and shoot up their classmates by the dozen. A world where people on one continent spend more in garbage bags for their household than most people in the world make in an entire year. A world where tens of thousands of people and children die needlessly every single day from curable diseases that corporations won't give to them because they don't yield enough profit. A world where political tyrants murder people groups by the hundred thousands. Can you imagine a world like this? A world filled with corruption and violence. But the text tells us that this is all the world was in Noah's time. No glimmers of good. We don't like to admit it, but the, the message of Noah's world still rings true. We don't like what the message says about us, what it says about humanity, that left to our own devices, we will drift recklessly towards corruption and violence. But there's another part to the message of Noah's life that we don't like. We don't like what it says about God. God said to Noah, behold, I've determined to make an end to all flesh. Can we be okay with God wiping the slate clean? God killing Everybody. Do we really think that's God acting justly? I want to invite you to stay in this tension with me and not to resolve it too quickly. Uh, This message, as difficult as it is for us to hear, 
was surely just as difficult for Noah to hear. And yet, the author of Hebrews says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Despite the difficulties of this message, Noah lived by faith, and this couldn't have been easy. Think about it. Noah lived inland. Uh, The ark you know, building tasks surely sounded like an absurd one. This would be like someone living in southern Alberta being like, what, build an ark? You know, I'm beside the Rockies. You know, there's no ocean for miles, Lord. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be okay. God uh, didn't give Noah a set timeline either. Scholars say it could have been anywhere between 20 years and 80 years before the flood actually came. But Noah didn't know that. He didn't know if it was tomorrow or the day after or years to come. And yet, despite how things appeared and without a timeline, Noah was faithful and did what God asked of him. And that's the point the author of Hebrews wants to make crystal clear. But it wasn't just that Noah believed this unseen event would happen. Noah's faithfulness endured. He persisted in living in light of what he believed. Day after day, he did what God asked of him. He, looked, you know, he surely looked like a fool all those around him, and yet he pressed on and constructed the ark, beam by beam. And let's not overlook something serious. Noah remained faithful, even in light of a message that was surely perplexing and challenging. He was faithful even when he didn't completely understand how God was about to act or make sense of it. You see, it's one thing to believe something and live in light of it for a few days or a week or a month or even a year. And yet, Noah, he endured for decades, possibly even generations. But when we aren't sure that what we believe in is even worth believing in at all, remaining faithful, enduring becomes so much harder. More often than not, we just simply can't endure. In the late 60s, there was a psychologist, Walter Mischkel. He ran what's now known as the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. I'm going to sign up one day. Here's how it went. One at a time, a child was led into a room, empty, with no distractions, uh, where a marshmallow was placed on the table by a chair. And the researchers would say to the child, you can eat this marshmallow, but if you wait for 15 minutes, we'll give you a second marshmallow. And it was amazing how the kids responded. You know, some would just cover their eyes and not look at the marshmallow. Uh, Some would, you know, like turn around so they couldn't see the tray. Uh, You know, others, they started like kicking the desk, pulling on their pigtails. Some, and there's a video of this, would pick up the marshmallow and stroke it. You know, like, (laughs) good marshmallow. Uh, While others, just as soon as the researchers left the room, they ate the marshmallow. In the initial experiment, only a third waited. For the majority, it was just too long to endure. But then in 2012, another group of research psychologists recreated the study. But they altered it by dividing uh, the children into two groups. Uh, The first was a group where a broken promise happened before the marshmallow test. Uh, They were called the unreliable testers. And the other group was given a fulfilled promise, and they are called the reliable testers. And obviously, we need to keep our children away from research psychologists. But... What they discovered is that the reliable tester group was willing to wait for up to four times longer because they had experienced a fulfilled promise. It revealed that children can endure even longer when they believe and trust that what was promised to them will actually come. 
You say, I'm not sure we outgrow this childlike instinct. We can endure for a long time until what we're enduring for doesn't make sense anymore. And for many of us, the moment that God doesn't make sense, we justify living however it is we want to live. It can be intellectual. You read something about God you don't like. I don't know, Noah's Ark. Uh, Or you encounter a command in the scriptures that you don't like. And so you say, well, I don't like this about God, so I don't have to do that either. Or God doesn't make sense because something happens in our lives. Maybe a tragedy. Maybe plans unravel. uh, Something goes south. We can't make sense of it. And as a result, we can't make sense of God. And so what happens? We justify withdrawing from God because God doesn't make sense to us. And since he doesn't make sense to us, it doesn't make sense to endure in being faithful of the things that he asks of us. And I don't say this from an ivory tower. Uh, Some of you, uh, maybe many of you know that last December, uh, a friend and mentor of mine committed suicide. He was a Christian minister. uh, And I've struggled with this almost daily. Uh, I I still can't figure out where God was when that took place. And there have been times where I used that confusion about God to justify withdrawing from God, to justify the, the little indulgence here and there, and flat out to justify sin sometimes. All of us, in, in some way, know what it's like to compromise when God just doesn't make sense. We turn away from God and we turn to ourselves so that we can just do whatever it is that we want to do. But Noah's faithfulness endured despite this challenging and perplexing message from God. Noah endured in years, decades of faithful waiting. And the author of Hebrews says, by this, in living this way, Noah condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So wait, Noah had faith, Noah endured, but then the author of Hebrews celebrates that by this he condemned the world? How do I flannel graph that? You know, what does this even mean? It's not even entirely clear at first. When we look at Noah's life in Genesis, it's clear. God is the one who brings judgment and justice to the world. God is the one doing the condemning. And yet, the author of Hebrews says that by faith, Noah condemned the world. How did Noah condemn the world? If we turn to 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 5, this is what Peter has to says, say about Noah. Uh, Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. Uh, Peter here expresses the Jewish tradition uh, that Noah didn't keep what was about to happen to himself. He was a preacher and a prophet. Uh, so this isn't just the case of a grumpy holy man shaking his finger at a terrible generation. This is Noah compassionately warning people. Living in light of what he believed meant pointing people to the one he believed could save. It meant proclaiming that God's judgment was coming, but it also meant proclaiming that you can turn to this God and find righteousness. But this leads us to the difficult truth. Once truth has been proclaimed, once people have heard it, It only leaves two options. It either leads people to their salvation as they repent and believe, or it leads them to their condemnation as they go on living in such a way that denies God. 
So in this way, Noah's warning condemned the world because no one turned to God. Noah was faithful. He endured within the mystery of an event unseen for most of his life. And yet we can relate to this on some levels. Jesus compassionately warns us of an unseen event. He explicitly teaches that one day he will return. And when he does, he will come to put an end to all suffering and evil and corruption and violence. He'll wipe away all mourning and tears and death. But we don't see this event yet. And regarding this day, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 24, verses 36 through 42. No one knows when it's going to happen. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Jesus talks about the the coming of the Son of Man, uh, the day of the Lord, and these are terms he uses for what we popularly call Judgment Day. And he says that on this day, uh, many won't stand. You see, Noah's unseen event was the flood, but our unseen event is Christ returning to judge both the living and the dead. And on that day, not only will our actions be exposed and evaluated before God, but the secrets of our hearts will be laid bare before him as well. And so this brings us back to the issue that many of us take with the message of the flood. To you, a God who comes and judges humanity is not a just and fair God. He just seems harsh and destructive. And this is a serious issue for you that you take with Christianity. First, let me say this. Without a judgment day, we would live in a hopeless world. Think about the state of the world as I described it earlier. I don't even want to repeat it. It's that bleak. If there's no God, if there's no judgment day, there will ultimately be no resolve for all the corruption and evil and violence and harsh endings that take place. That would be it. That would be the end. Injustice and corruption and violence would have the final say. The only way all the evil and corruption and violence and unfairness of the world can ultimately be resolved is if there is a God and if that God does act and judge and bring justice. The only hope for true justice is if there's a God who can raise the dead and restore what's been taken by a deeply unfair world. A God who can say, this was wrong, this is the cost, and this is how I restore what has been lost. You see, if we want Justice, true justice, not just temporary fixes. We need God to come in judgment. And when God comes in judgment, uh, it ultimately renews the entire creation. It removes all that is wrong with the world. But more importantly, I don't think the issue is actually judgment day itself. I think the real issue is that most people just don't think judgment day is going to happen. And let's be honest, the public perception of Judgment Day has just been brutal. Uh, Whether it's Nicolas Cage in, you know, Left Behind Remade, uh, or misguided Christian ministers predicting the day that the world will end and us seeing that day come and go. It just leads to one result. Judgment Day seems like a joke. We just don't care. 
And so we would rather go on with our lives and make the best of our lives while we're alive. And you figure if there's a judgment day, you'll probably be fine. In elementary school, uh, once a year there is this mandatory class run. Uh, and I can't remember exactly how far the run was distance-wise. Uh, have you ever heard of the you know, ultra marathon? I'm pretty sure they invented that in my elementary school, like 160K. Uh, at least that's what it felt like. And I remember, you know, the first year they instituted this at my school in the fifth grade. Uh, we were told ominously in the class, like, there's going to be a run, you know, and you're going to be evaluated on this run, and it's going to be a part of graduating. Uh, and that, it's mandatory, but don't worry, it'll be fun. Uh, and I remember thinking, oh, that's, that's far off. I don't need to, to worry about that, so I didn't really care. Um, but over the months to come, during recess, the kids just got really amped up about it. They said, the run's coming. You know, are you getting ready? And like some kids took it really seriously. Like they started like running laps around the playground or like doing pull-ups. Like my friend Billy Miller, like he took this seriously. Billy trained. Uh, but honestly, it was so far away when people asked me, say, are you worried about the run? No, nah, it'll be a piece of cake. So what went on with life as normal. And the truth is I totally forgot about the run. That is until one early March morning I arrived to school and they announced over the PA, the class run is today, 160K. So we were, we were sent to our change rooms, but I didn't bring my gym bag. So I had to run in my jeans and regular shoes. And I don't know why, but I didn't wear socks on this one day. <laughs> and so we piled outside. The course was explained to us, and we started running. And, you know, the first minute or two, I felt fine. I said, you know what? This is a piece of cake. I'm going to do great. But, you know, like you shouldn't run in jeans. Like if you've never gone on a run and you want to start running, this is the one thing I know. Don't go for a run in jeans. Like they just, you know, started getting uncomfortable. Uh, and I, I started, you know, getting blisters on my feet. But, you know, I thought, you know, this isn't so bad. I'll, I'll press through. Um, but I only thought that until I remembered that I had asthma. Uh, and I only remember that I had asthma because I had an asthma attack and didn't have my inhaler with me. Uh, needless to say, I didn't finish the course. Uh, it came. I was unprepared. I was the asthma kid. If anyone should be training, it should have been me. Um, but I lived as if the race would never come, and that if it did come, I would be just fine. Just because you don't care about Judgment Day doesn't mean that judgment isn't coming. And just because you assume you'll be fine, that doesn't mean you will be. We have a tendency as humans to overestimate our own goodness and abilities. And Scripture unashamedly teaches us that no one will stand on this day. Jesus says, um, we don't know what day it will come. There's no use trying to predict it, but it will come. It could be tomorrow. It could be five minutes from now. It could be another millennia. We don't know, but Jesus says there's two options before us. The first is like Noah's generation. You can eat and drink and go on with life, living as if this is all there is to have, and ignore the warning. You know, you eat the marshmallow. The second option is this, you pay attention. You listen. You stay awake like Noah. You endure. You endure in your belief in Jesus, and you endure in living for him. Now, I'm not saying that this means you go grab a loudspeaker and paint a sign that says, you know, the end is nigh, and, and stand ominously on a street corner. You know, you can do that if you want. That's okay. I don't think it's very effective in our culture. But it definitely means that you start living with the end in mind. Everything isn't going to pan out okay for everybody. Can we just put an end to that belief? 
Because that's not from Scripture, that's from our culture. We have to accept this heartbreaking truth. People's salvation matters. And it's on the table with Christ. And remembering where this is all heading does two things. It reminds us that how we live our lives matters because we will be judged. And it reminds us that how we care for the lives of others matters because they will also be judged. These are the the options on the table between now and when Christ returns. Uh, And Noah, he models the right response for us. Noah stayed awake. He endured in his faithfulness. And yet Noah was still flawed. You know, after the flood, God establishes a new promise with Noah and humanity. Uh, He promises never to destroy the world again by flood. He promises a better way of dealing with uh, humanity's corruption and evil. And after enduring through judgment and justice, and after receiving these promises, what does Noah go and do? Genesis 8.21, Noah drank of the wine and became drunk and lay naked in his tent. Noah's not perfect. He's a mess like anybody else. Uh, He wasn't perfect in his endurance. He didn't live perfectly. And we get this. It's so hard to have an enduring faith, let alone an enduring faithfulness. It's hard to endure in believing that Jesus really is who he said he is and that Jesus is actually going to return one day, especially after it's been 2,000 years since he made that promise. This unseen event seems really unseen at this point. And so it's easy to begin to compromise, isn't it? Say, you know what, maybe I got this wrong. Maybe it's best that I just blend in and enjoy this life and look like everybody else. And the truth is we fall asleep. We don't stay awake. We drift back into autopilot and we live like the rest of the world and we adopt its values and its practices and its customs. We eat and we drink and we enjoy life and we don't live as if Jesus is going to return at any moment with justice and judgment. So the question is, what are we to do? Because we struggle to stay awake like Jesus commands. And if we can't endure in being faithful to Jesus, how can we expect to endure the judgment that is to come? The night before Jesus was betrayed, he's in a garden with his disciples and he asks them to stay awake with him and pray. But the disciples, they fall asleep. But our Lord stayed awake in prayer. And he endured despite the weight and the the gravity of what was about to transpire. Jesus endures in faithfulness to the Father, even when the Father's will was that he would drink the cup and be crucified. The cup is symbolic of the consequences for our actions and behavior. The judgment that we all deserve from God would be poured out on Jesus. Instead, he would drink that cup. He stayed awake and he he wrestled with God about God's will, and yet he freely chose to do this. He endured in his faithfulness to the plan of the, the triune God. Noah shows us that through one man, God is going to construct our salvation. And in this way, Jesus is the author and perfecter of Noah's faith. Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 2, For the joy set before him, we looked at that last week, Christ endured the cross. Jesus stayed awake for us. He didn't swerve from what God asked of him. There on the cross, Jesus was judged instead of us. And Jesus received God's condemnation so that the inexcusable in us could be forgiven. 
And in a mysterious way, all the corruption and the violence and the evil that is in this world is dealt with there in that moment. And so anytime God doesn't make sense to you, look to the cross. Look to the God who so deeply entered into the suffering of the world that he took it upon himself and bears the judgment freely for us. You see, Noah's faith reminds us that it's faith alone that saves It's not our ability to be perfectly faithful. It's not our ability to perfectly endure. It's faith alone that will bring us through God's judgment. And his faith in this way points us to Jesus. Because if you believe in what Jesus did for you and what Jesus accomplished, I want to tell you this and I hope you hear this. You have already been judged. He stood in your place of judgment for us. Which means in Christ we have the guarantee of an acquittal at that future day when God comes to judge the world. You're covered because our vessel isn't an ark or anything that we constructed. Our vessel is the cross. It's what Christ has done and what Christ has accomplished. You see, our faith is in the one who endured where we could never endure. When Jesus calls us to stay awake, though, when he calls us to an enduring faith in him, It comes with a promise that he'll sustain us in doing so. You see, the source of our own enduring, the source of our own faithfulness, any ability to follow him even, is found only in him, in Jesus, who we can rely on. Because he always endures for us. Jesus stays awake, interceding for us, sustaining us, holding us, carrying us when we can no longer endure. And as we wait for Jesus to return, as we wait for that day, we remain faithful to him not out of obligation, but out of sheer delight because Christ did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He brings us through the judgment of God. So we stay awake. We live for him and we live in light of how this world will end. And part of staying awake for Jesus is living like Noah compassionately warning people to prepare for Christ's return.